Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now, here's Pastor Daryl. We're on chapter 11 of Romans. We've been marching through this grand epistle of Romans, been asking the question, what would God have us to know, what he would have us to learn? And last week, we discovered that Israel had been given many chances. Israel was intentionally ignorant of the things of God, willfully ignorant, right? We covered that last week, and so that's now the platform, that's now the basis for which we find ourselves looking into chapter 11. Israel has been willfully disobedient and willfully ignorant of the things of God, but is all hope lost? Have all chances been extinguished? Does God still have something for those who have been willfully rebellious. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you that we can pause now to open your word. Father, we have worshipped you in song. We've worshipped you in giving. We've worshipped you in readings and prayer. And now, Father, we want to worship you in the word. And this idea of worship means that we are willing to surrender, to submit we're willing to bow down and humble ourselves before you. So, Father, we may not deal with that physically, but I pray that our hearts would be in that posture, that we would be willing to bow to the Word of God. Because we know, Father, that it is in your Word that you reveal yourself, you reveal the plan of salvation, and how we should conduct ourselves as your children. So, Lord, I just ask, please, that you would speak through me, that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness, that you'd wash over me with the blood of Christ. Lord, give me the words from on high that would be your words to bless your children today. And I ask for your special blessing, your spirit to be poured out on my brothers and sisters that are here, those that may be watching online. Father, please bring us the blessing that we need today. Challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us for the journey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys may have figured out by now that I like to learn things. I'm always trying to expand and and learn and just embrace new things. And so as I started thinking about the sermon for this week, I began to think about something. Have you ever, now see if you can follow this. I'll try to explain this before I tell you the name of this. Have you ever gotten something new and all of a sudden now that you have that thing that's new, you now notice that it's everywhere? You understand what I'm talking about, right? There's actually a phenomenon behind it. It is actually known as the Bader-Manhoff phenomenon. Now, how's that for a mouthful? Right? It's a hyphenated word, Bader, B-A-A-D-E-R, and it's a German name, so my friends back here that speak German, keep me straight. I don't know if I'm butchering the name, but Bader-Manhoff. And this phenomena, and really psychologists will refer to it as frequency illusion. Let's say, for instance, you buy a new blue car, 
And because my friend here works for, what's the name of that company now? Stellantis. He works for what used to be known as Chrysler. That's what I'm going to go with. The company formerly known as Chrysler. How's that? Can't keep up with the changes. And let's say that you buy a new vehicle and it's a blue one. All of a sudden, Matt starts noticing, man, there's a lot of blue vehicles on the road. Well, it's, it's not that there's any more blue vehicles on the road. It's just now, out of all the haze and noise of bombardment with which we are mentally bombarded, every day, something vying for our attention, screaming for our attention, now he has had a reason to stop and notice blue. Maybe you're not into blue vehicles. Maybe you want a new pet. And maybe, Christopher, you decide to buy a bulldoggle. Did you hear what I said? A bulldoggle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You see, because English bulldogs apparently have some inherent genetic traits, such as hip problems and some other things because of their pudginess. They have trouble breathing. So they've now, Christopher, mixed bulldogs with pugs and beagles. They still look like a bulldog, but they're much healthier. So Christopher has just purchased his brand new bulldoggle. He went over to the family pet store in Novi, and for a cool $5,000, they gave him a new dog. And if you think I'm out of my mind, go to the store. My daughter likes to go over there, and all we do is let her look. But you've got your brand new bulldoggle, and you've taken him out to the park. And all of a sudden, guess what, Christopher? You know, man, there's a lot of bulldoggles around. And because you've studied the breed, you know the characteristics. Oh, well, look, honey, he's got a bulldog. He does not have a bulldog. That is a bulldoggle, too. And it's not because there's more bulldoggles now. Again, it's because of out of all of the noise and confusion in life, now you have a reason to notice something right? It's now, another way we might be able to put it is now it's on your radar in a way that it wasn't before. Again, what was the fancy name for this phenomenon? Scott told me the Bader-Hoffman phenomena. Is Scott right? Do this. Bader-Manhoff. It looks like Meinhoff, but I think it's pronounced Manhoff. Martina or somebody can correct me later. So why... What I even talk about this? Well, what it got me, why I started thinking about this was because Scripture can be much the same way. You have a Bible in the pew or even your personal Bible. Somebody hold up a real Bible. Not that this one's not real, but it's digital. I just mean something that's bound. Okay, so may I use your bound Bible? This is a little book, right? Easy reading. Sit down and finish it in one setting, yes or no? All right, I'm going to flip through here. Let's just see how many pages, not counting appendices and all that. Scott's Bible has 1,782 pages. Now, almost 1,800 pages of reading in 66 volumes, and all of the examples, cultural and otherwise, are exactly like your life today, yes or no? Are not all of you farmers? How many of you wish you were farmers? Okay, I've got three. How many of you pray you never have to be a farmer? That's where I am. I do my shopping in the produce section of Meyer. My point is, the Bible is so thick. There's so much there. 
God has not just given us a small revelation of his word, he's given us a vast revelation of his word. Can you agree with that? 66 volumes written by about 42 authors over a period of 1,500 years. It's very easy to come to the Bible and just say it's too overwhelming. And then we kind of find ourselves, well, I'll read this because that's familiar, and I'll read this. And then we run into some sections. People say, well, I'm going to read the whole Bible. And then they get to the begats. And Roger, the brakes come on. Oh, so-and-so begats, so-and-so, and so. How many of you get excited about reading the begats? I'll tell you how you make the begats fun. Are you ready? Here's how you make the begats fun. What you do, and I like to start with Matthew, right? Because Matthew then references back to a lot of the other lists. What I like to do is look through that list of begats and pick out a name and then go and search for that name in other places of the Bible and just get a little familiarity with that person's history, right? Because if I don't do something like that, I'll just be reading this list of names and not to pick on my brother Matt, but how much experience do you have pronouncing Hebrew names? He said he butchered them. I'm not going to say amen or let's just say that most of us don't use those names. So the scripture can be very much just like everyday life. There's so much there. There's so much depth that we kind of remain very superficial. I want to submit to you that we've got to get in the habits of stopping and paying attention so that the things of rich and deep experience in the scripture can become something that now jumps out at us. But we have to be intentional about that. For instance, if I mention to you the concept of the remnant, how many of you have taken the time to go through and study the scripture and identify various remnants in the Bible? Since it's only been one of you, the rest of you get to do it with me today. Amen? All right, we're not going to do an exhaustive list, but let's just go through a few, okay? I want to start with Noah. Go with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis where? Genesis 6, talking about the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. Do we know how many people went onto the ark? Find the verse. I hear people calling out names. Which verse do we find it? I'm going to give you a clue. It's somewhere between 17 and 19. Somebody had it. Do you see it there? But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. We know from reading other places in Scripture that Noah had how many sons? Three, Shem, Ham, and Yepheth, or we might say Japheth, right? But the Y, the J's in Hebrew actually are pronounced as Y's, similarly to German, I think. Is that right, Martina? Huh? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So when you see J in the Hebrew, it has a Y sound. That's what I'm saying. I thought that was similar to German. Is that correct? She's ignoring me. Okay. All right. I'm used to it. I get that with a lot of people. But we know he had three sons, and assuming they had one wife apiece, we know that Noah had a wife, so we can come to what was the remnant that made it onto the ark. He had three sons. Work with me. Six, and then Noah and his wife. Okay. All right. So there was eight. Was that a large group of people? 
No, out of all of society, you have eight people that made it onto the ark. Was that a remnant? Absolutely, in remnant. Pastor, what's this word? Remnant just means something small that remained, right? But it has the same characteristics from the larger pool from which it was taken, except a remnant will bear those characteristics of God, okay? Let's talk about another remnant that we find in Scripture. This time we're going to Genesis 19. We're still in Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis 19. Whose story do we find in Genesis 19? All right, so here we have the story of Lot, and he lives in Detroit. He lives in Chicago. He lives in New York, San Francisco. Take your pick of any large city that is abundant with sin. Are are you with me? I'm not just slamming Detroit. I'm not trying to be that way. I'm simply saying that we know historically cities are places of vice and sin, right? They're hotbeds for it, okay? So he lives in the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many people make it out with Lot? I'm hearing two, that's wrong. I'm hearing three, that's wrong. Where's the verse? You know one thing the military taught me about firearms training? If you don't have a target, you never miss. You can't miss if there's no target, but they've told me I've given you a target, so hit the target. I've asked you to find the verse. Where's the verse? Where does it tell us? I narrowed it down to a chapter. Somebody's telling me verse 30. Is it in verse 30? Okay, let's read verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. Oh, we're too far. Okay, so let's back up to 15. Zoar is where he was allowed to go. Verse 15 of Genesis 19 says, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. So let's do the math. Lot, his wife, and how many daughters? Two. Comes to a total of four. And we know that out of the four, how many of them actually survived the trip? Only three. So those of you that were saying three, you were right. You just got a little ahead of me. Again, large number, small number. Majority or remnant? Now, Let's continue to look and see a few more places where we see this remnant theology playing out. This time we go to Daniel chapter 3. Your radar should go off. You should know this story. Daniel chapter 3, we find ourselves on the plain of Dura, D-U-R-A. And we find out that there is a king there who is very humble Do we find a humble king, Jeremy, in Daniel chapter 3? No, we find a brother who had a vision, who was given a dream by God, and in the vision, the head of the statue was gold. But he has to go a little further. He sets up a 90 feet tall golden statue. Can you imagine that being on the plain, the desert plain, the sun glistening off of that thing? Can you imagine how just amazing that would have been? And all I want you to do is just show up. I've assembled the best band. And when the band kicks off, all you have to do is bow down to this beautiful golden image. No problem. 
unless you happen to be Hananiah. What's the other two names? And I better not hear pagan names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What did they say? Not happening. Everybody else was willing to bow down. And I mean, think about how easy it could have been. Well, you know, I don't really want to bow down to this thing, but my sandal is a little loose. I'll just, I'll just tighten my sandal. Same thing. Question for you. Were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah the only Hebrews present on the plain? Probably not. And yet, everyone bowed down except them. So was the majority in the right, or was there just a faithful remnant? Just a faithful remnant. Again, we see this concept, and I want to put this concept on your mind so heavily that when you read through Scripture, that you'll say, oh, wait a minute, there's another remnant. There's another group that when the majority was absolutely losing their minds, here's another group that was willing to be faithful. Here's another group that chose to be a remnant. Let's see if we can find a couple more examples. 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, where Matt read the Scripture reading for us. Thank you so much for that. 1 Kings 19. Go down to verse 14. And here we find Elijah having a pity party. Am I right? I mean, you figure, just a few days prior, he had stood upon Mount Carmel, and he had seen the glory of the Lord come down in such a powerful and miraculous display that few things in Scripture can rival that. I mean, people saw some amazing things, but can you imagine? You're there, and I've seen videos of fires moving through grasslands and forested areas. Have you ever noticed that sound that it makes? It's consuming, it's pulling in that catalyst oxygen so fast that it creates that. Can you imagine God's fire coming down from heaven in such a powerful and manifest way that it not only licks up the offering, but wipes out everything else there? And then, do you remember how many people he took down to the creek and Gave them their last rites. Anybody remember? 450 prophets of one flavor and about 400 of another flavor. Simple math, 850 people. And then how many women did it take to send him running? Brother slays 850 false prophets, and all it takes is the threats of one woman to send him scampering to the wilderness. And here he finds himself standing at the cave, having his pity party. Lord, I'm the only one that's left. I've been zealous. Lord, look, I've been faithful. Look at verse 14 with me, please. First Kings 19. And he said, because the Lord's asked him, look at the end of verse 13 first. What are you doing here, Elijah? I loved that implication. Don't you have somewhere to be? I loved that question when I heard that question in the military. That's where I learned that question. Don't you have somewhere to be? And you better have a good answer. Because I discovered if you didn't have somewhere to be, someone will find somewhere for you to be. 
And many times it was on your face, looking at the ground. So I hear in God's word, don't you have somewhere to be? What are you doing here? Well, Lord, I've been zealous. Because the children of Israel, they've all forsaken your covenant. Because God has no clue. We need to tell him what's going on, right? They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And Lord, I alone am left. It's just little old me. Oh, it's just me, Lord. I'm the only one. And then I love God's answer in verse 18. I have reserved how many? Here's another point about remnant theology. And this is an important one. Was Elijah being faithful within his sphere? We could question. I can make a little fun of him. I can give him a hard time from running for Jezebel. But had he been faithful by and large? Yeah, absolutely. And friends, sometimes when we're being faithful, we lose sight of others being faithful. Because in his faithfulness, how much awareness did he have of other people being faithful? Absolutely none. Yet the Lord says, I've got 7,000. You may think you're alone, but I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to the Baals. I want to go with you now to Pentecost. We'll fast forward to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. We're working our way to Romans chapter 11. You're thinking, did this brother forget he's preaching about Romans? I haven't forgotten. We're going to Romans 11. Just bear with me. Acts chapter 2. Will you go there, please? Acts chapter 2. We find ourselves about 50 days after the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. They've had the upper room experience. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and others deliver powerful, powerful messages. How many were baptized? Which verse tells me how many were baptized? I know it's 3,000. Where do I find it? Where in this chapter? Then those who gladly received his word, verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Saints, I have a question for you. Was that 3,000 very visible at Jesus' trial? Was the 3,000 very visible when Jesus was condemned before Pilate? Were the 3,000 very visible as Christ was basically dragged down the street after having been beaten, having been scourged, having his back ripped open, and now an old rugged timber laid across his shoulders, was the 3,000 very visible? Were the 3,000 very visible when the crowd cried out, crucify him? Were the 3,000 very visible? So did it appear that Jesus was all alone? Forget the 3,000, were the 11 very visible when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane? Where did those guys go? <laughs> Scattered like cockroaches when the light comes on. Peter even took it further, even though he was curious and he followed after where they took Jesus to conduct his mockery of a trial. As Peter stood there warming himself by the fire, 
he even went so far as to curse and use profanity to say that I have no association with that guy. So we could say the 3,000 weren't very visible. The 11 certainly weren't very visible. And one of the 11 was actually willing to verbally say, I don't know the man. Seems like Jesus is all alone. 50 days later, you have about 3,000 people who fall under conviction of the power of the Holy Spirit. And saints, I would submit this to you. Tell me if you think I'm off base. Those 3,000 people didn't just suddenly develop a heart for Christ. There must have been something in their minds wondering, is this guy the guy? Does that make sense? Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to assume that they had a true heart wanting to follow God, and when they were given enough information and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, they made that decision to continue to follow God? Is that a reasonable assumption, yes or no? Do you think there were more than 3,000 people that had journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover? So was the majority willing to accept Christ, or was it again just a faithful remnant? faithful remnant. Again, over and over, the Scripture presents a picture of only, and it's not exclusive, but only in a faithful remnant that's willing to follow Christ. It's willing to be faithful to God. Let's go to Romans 11 now. Let's tie this together. See what lessons we can glean. Romans chapter 11. We're going to hit a few of the verse sections, a few of the passages here. But before we start, go back, if you would, and read Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Last verse in the chapter. This is a quote from Isaiah. What are we left at the end of chapter 10 to think of the nation of Israel? Disobedient and contrary. If I can put that in a little bit more modern vernacular, they were rebels and hard-headed. And contrary, right? Contrary, just I'm not just trying to be different. I'm going to be irritatingly so. I'm trying to be contrary. I'm just going to be difficult for no reason. Have you ever met people that just love to be difficult for no reason? I feel an obligation in my life to inform people when I think they're doing that. Anybody else feel that way? Joe? I mean, your whole family is that way. <laughs> well, brother, I'm glad that you escaped. I'm glad that you escaped. I mean, we need to be tactful. We don't need to let people run over and act a fool just because they choose to. We can stand up for what's right. I had a guy look at me like I was absolutely crazy one time. I'm standing in a parts store. This was probably five, six years ago. One of my sons is with me, of course, a little younger back then. This guy's standing there in the parts store, blah, 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 and he's letting the words fly, I mean, and he's just so proud of himself. I just went over and tapped him on the shoulder. I said, excuse me. I said, do you mind watching your language? I said, some of us don't care to hear that, and I've got a small child with me. I'd really appreciate you being a little more careful with your language. And then I followed that up with a big smile and said, thank you so much.
disobedient and contrary people. But notice, all hope is not lost. All chances have not been exhausted. They've not emptied the reservoir of God's grace and love. Verse 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? What is his answer to that? God forbid, certainly not. Remember, I told you, this is that very strongest Greek negation, meganoita. We've talked about that in some of the previous sermons. This is one of those sayings that's rendered, may it never even come into existence, would actually be the best way to render it. That's why I like how the King James puts it. It says, God forbid, right? So if God forbids something, does it come into existence? No. So that's actually a very good translation. God forbid, certainly not. And then notice verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And then he goes on and he quotes. So the point here is this. Doesn't matter how badly you've messed up. If you're willing to come around, God's willing to take you. I don't know how many of you that's good news for this morning or this afternoon, but I've messed up a lot in my life. And I dare say some of you've messed up a lot. Is that a fair assessment, yes or no? Again, I'm so glad that we cannot exhaust. Yeah, we can. It takes a while, and it really takes until probation closes or our life ends. But if we still have breath, probation has not closed. Is grace and mercy still available to us? Praise God. And saints, the rest of the chapter simply goes through building the case of why God is willing to let us come back in. Why he's willing to let us be a part of the family. And it's interesting. I love one of the strategies that Paul uses. Go with me down to verse 14, if you would, please. Verse 14, we're Romans chapter 11. Well, let me read 13 just so it makes more sense. He says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Now, how many of you have thought about before jealousy being a good strategy for winning people to God? Let's process that for a second. Next thing we do in our next evangelistic series is we've got to make people jealous about what we have. It kind of sounds a little weird in our minds, doesn't it? So what kind of jealousy is he speaking about? Is he talking about that self-centered kind of jealousy? What kind of jealousy is he meaning? Well, let's think about this. In Exodus chapter 20, and I believe verse 5, jump there with me. I want you to see this for yourself. Hold your finger in Romans 11, if your book can hold a finger. Exodus chapter 20, which verse? Verse 5, how does God describe himself in Exodus 20 and verse 5? I am a what type of God? A jealous God. Does that mean that God is petty and small-minded? What does he mean? What type of jealousy? I think it's this type of jealousy. It's the type of jealousy that I have been given something so wonderful, so amazing, so fulfilling, so just overwhelmingly magnificent, 
and I'm heartbroken that you don't have it too. How's that for jealousy? It's not jealousy about I have something. Well, I have it and Matt doesn't. It's, hey, I've been given something awesome or I have something awesome and I'm jealous, I'm upset that Matt doesn't have it too. I want Matt to have it. I want Matt to have it. I want all of you to have it. And I believe that's the type of jealousy that Paul is speaking of. Here, go back with me now to Romans chapter 11. He's saying, listen, you Gentiles, I want you to live your faith in such a way that your life is being so abundantly blessed that my Jewish brothers and sisters look at what's happening and say, wait a minute, why do I not have that? I want that. So it's that very positive wanting people to have something that you've been blessed to have. Does that make sense, yes or no? And then he uses two metaphors to describe coming back to God. Look at verse 15, Romans chapter 11, verse 15 with me, please. It says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the what? So the metaphor that he's using here to describe Israel's current condition is what? What's the metaphor? It's a resurrection metaphor, and to be resurrected, what did you first have to be? You first had to be dead. The saints, I don't know about you, but if I happen to have to taste of death, I want to come up in the first resurrection. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, what were the two resurrections? Let's put it this way. The first resurrection is a good one, right? Revelation tells us, blessed are they that take part in the first resurrection. Because the second resurrection, Jesus describes it in John 8 as the resurrection of condemnation or of damnation. Right? So if I have to taste of death, I want to be in that first resurrection. How about you? So this is a good thing. This is a positive thing. You have no idea how many times I've had to preach a funeral, and I just wish that I could lay hands on that coffin and say, Lord, bring them back. The hardest funeral I ever did was for a two-week-old child. I was at a loss for words. And I started my funeral message that way, telling them, friends, I don't know what to tell you to take away your pain. All I know to do is to point you to Jesus. That's all I had. And his promise that he would give them comfort. And the baby, nothing nefarious. There was no illness. It was one of those rollover in the cribs and kind of smothered itself on its own clothing. Awful. So when we read here, verse 15, that somebody can come back from death and be given life, that's a very positive thing. Are you with me? So he uses that very positive metaphor. Now notice there's another one. How many of you would consider yourselves a little bit of a horticulturalist? Any of you do any grafting of trees together? Like you'll take a fruit tree. Seth, are you a grafter? You, you know how to do all that kind of stuff? Well, just say yes. Don't be ashamed of it. Grafting's a fun thing, right? It's a good thing. And Seth, help me out. Am I correct that you can take two fruit trees 
and you can graft them together and you'll get two different fruits off of the same tree. Is that correct? Yeah, so you've got this blending of things that are similar but not exactly the same that can be grafted, right? And it's a cutting of a sliver, right, down in behind the bark and cutting that branch at a sliver, bringing it in there, tucking it in, and then wrapping it where those nutrients begin to flow into that new branch. That's the next metaphor that he uses. Let's look at it together. He says, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now notice, do we have two types of trees? Yes or no? What were the two types of trees? Let's make sure we keep this straight. You being what type of olives? Wild olives. And now you're being grafted into what type of tree? Just olive. All right, so you've got similar fruits, so to speak, similar products, wild olives, regular olives. Okay, but you can become in and be part of the fatness of the olive tree. But do not boast against the branches. In other words, those that have been broken out. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but that the root supports you. Now, let me ask you a question. When were the branches of Israel broken out? I'm looking for a specific year. When were the branches of Israel broken out? As a corporate body. I'm hearing it over here. I'm hearing 34 AD. 34 AD is the end of which prophecy? 70-week prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. What happened of grand significance in AD 34 that caused corporate Israel as branches to be broken off of the tree? The stoning of Stephen. It was in that moment when the nation of Israel, the leadership of that body, rejected the message and the cross of Christ that they broke themselves off from the olive tree. So here they are, their branches broken off from the root. And what happens to the branch when it's broken off if it's not grafted back in fairly quickly? It dies, it becomes brittle and dry and easily broken even further. So he uses this metaphor that these branches can come back in. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands except in your hearts. But how many of you have at one point in your life had a salvation experience and you've broken away from the root? I've had a number of people over the course of my ministry that have asked me for rebaptism because at one point they broke away from the root, became dry and brittle, and they had that desire to be reinvigorated with spiritual life, to come back from spiritual death, and they wanted to be part of the body again. And I'll tell you, it's a beautiful experience to see somebody that has broken away and now have that desire to come back. Amen? And we as a church should rejoice. We should celebrate when that happens. In fact, I have to tell you a quick little funny story. I had a lady that wanted to be rebaptized. She wore wigs. I came in that morning and she had a fishing string tied under her chin, holding her wig on. And I said, What is that? Because it looked like she was wearing a party hat. She's like, oh, I've got this thing tied on. I tell you how oblivious I was. I didn't even know she wore wigs. 
But I knew enough in that moment that that was a bad idea. And so I encouraged her. And it went well going under the water. But you know how water has that suction? Any ideas how this story ended? When that dear sister came up out of the water, you could see the smile on her face, the happiness in her heart, and the water pulled that puppy back. She let go of my arms, and she yelled out, Hope there it went! But she rescued it before it made full escape. By that time, I had her standing upright. Her smile had gone to abject horror. And she asked me, she said, do you think anybody saw that? (laughs) I pulled her close to me. I gave her a hug. And I said, you just recommitted your heart to Jesus. Does it matter? Even an embarrassment. It's good to come home. Amen? It's good to come home. It's good to be faithful. Of course, I couldn't laugh then. But I cried myself to sleep. Couldn't quit thinking about it. But I'll tell you, to this day, she's a dedicated and devout Seventh-day Adventist who faithfully goes to church every week. She now leads different departments in the church. She shows up to every event. She's given her heart to Christ, and she doesn't care who knows it. So here's my question as we draw this thing to a close. Where are you today? Are you part of the remnant? You know, and we have another remnant that's mentioned in Revelation. We're told that the devil was wroth with the woman. Revelation 12, 17, and he went to make war with the remnant or the rest of her offspring who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And saints, here's one of the lessons I want to bring home from the teaching today. You look around and you may think, I see the remnant. There's a few verses I want you to explore with me before we end. First, I want us to go and I want us to look. I'm thinking of Jesus' words where he says in John 10, John chapter 10, verse 16. If you'd look at that with me really quickly, John 10, 16, and then Revelation 18, 4, we're going to close with this. John 10, 16. What does Jesus say about sheep here? And other sheep I have, which are not where? Of this fold. So in other words, look around the people that you see, the body of people that you see that you think are the only ones that are faithful. I've got news to you. I've got other people that are being faithful with what they've been given. Revelation 18.4. Jump there with me, please, quickly. Revelation 18.4. Talking about... Babylon. What does it say there? Those who have been worshiping among apostate believers, what does the Lord say to them? 
do what? Come out of her, you people that I don't know at all. What designator does God use? He uses a possessive pronoun, right? My. Come out of her, my people. Friends, I want to be very careful how I say this because I don't want to offend you. Sometimes we as Seventh-day Adventists think we're the only ones that are part of the remnant. According to Scripture, there's other people that are going to be a part of the remnant. You say, well, okay, well, Pastor, if there's other people going to be a remnant, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, because right now, Seventh-day Adventist Church is the denomination that I see that is upholding the vast majority of Scripture. If there was another church that upheld more Scripture, guess which church I would be a part of? That church. Now, in the last days, is God going to reveal all of his truth to people? Is he going to expect them to embrace it and hold them accountable for that? So in the last days, friends, the denominational name's not really going to mean anything. What's going to make a difference is whether or not you're a part of the faithful remnant. I just want to be a part of the faithful remnant now and not wait till then. How about you? I want to be a part of that faithful remnant today. That remnant that pauses to remember what Christ has done and moves forward in faith to live out that life before a world that needs a Savior. What do you say, saints? That's my desire today. How about you? Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you that we can see through Scripture during every crisis, during every spiritual low, you have those that are being faithful. You've got that faithful remnant. And no, they're not perfect. Oh, they make so many mistakes. But yet you carry them through. You give them the strength to abide. And really their faithfulness is just your faithfulness being lived out in their lives. And Father, that's what we want today. That's what we need today. Just as we sometimes may think we're all alone, you have others that are also being faithful. So I pray that we would never fall into the pity party and say, oh me, it's just me. No, it's not just me. There are many others, but Lord, we need that fellowship. So let our eyes be open to others around us that are being faithful. Let us be a support to one another and let us call this world to that same faithfulness because Father, whether they've been part of the root before, you're willing to graft them in just like you did the Gentiles who never knew you. And maybe there's some of us here today, Father, that have been a faithful branch in the past, but we've broken away and now it's time to come home. Lord, move upon your people's hearts today. And if someone needs to make that decision of recommitment and maybe even rebaptism, Father, send your spirit to convict their heart just now in such a way that they know the message is from you, not from me. And so now, Father, as we transition to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I ask that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would purify our minds. We claim the promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, that he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Cleanse us now in this moment, Father. Prepare our hearts to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. 
We ask this blessing now in his holy name. Amen. You have been listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit his church this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church at 15585 North Haggerty Road in Plymouth, Michigan, and their worship service starts at 1045 a.m. Their website is www.metrosdachurch.org. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.